Welcome to the Bear Marriage Podcast. I'm Sheila Ray Gregoire from ToLoveHonorAndVacuum.com, where we like to strip away everything. Not everything. (laughs) (laughs) Please finish that thought. (laughs) Where we like to strip away all the teaching that's rotten about marriage and get back to what God really intended. (sighs) And with that intro... We're going to do something different today. <laughs> yes, we are. You might be realizing if you're watching this on YouTube and this is where you normally you know, watch our podcast that there is no video. Yes, because we are not doing a regular podcast. We are going to share with you. We're going to give you a special sneak peek yeah. at something which is subscription only. Yes. So we have a Patreon group, which if you've been following this podcast, you already know about, I'm sure. But one of the perks that we have for our patrons is we, um, as in myself and usually one other person, person have a unfiltered podcast <laughs> that we upload and there's no editing whatever we say and, ends up in and there. Becca rants you I rant. rant quite a bit Joanna rants quite a bit we upload twice a month to that group and mm-hmm. we wanted to just share our unfiltered podcast from July with mm-hmm. you because it went it, it sparked some really interesting discussions and we just wanted to give you a taste of what the podcasts are like um, behind, in essence, behind the paywall. And we thought this week was a great week to do it because, yay, we hit 100 patrons. We did. And so we're really thrilled with that. And the reason that we have our patrons is not to support the Bear Marriage Podcast or my blog or anything because those are all self-sustaining. It's really to support the stuff that we can't monetize that yeah. we think is really important. Or the stuff that's going to require a big amount of kind of like work before it can be monetized. Yeah, so it's paying Joanna up in the Arctic to (laughs) do all kinds of work getting our research for the Great Sex Rescue into peer-reviewed academic journals, which we just think is so important. We're going to be speaking at physiotherapy conferences, just getting some of that ready. Um, It's paying to get on other social media channels and just to get the word out about our research for the Great Sex Rescue so that we can indeed change the conversation about sex in the evangelical world. Mm -hmm. And so for people who support us, we do have a lot of goodies we have a really active facebook group mm-hmm. which is yes. actually a lot of fun i know we're making so many friends where i'm like okay if we go to all these different places we have people we have to take out for dinner i'm totally taking out ilva in germany i, I know i want to go to germany <laughs> just to meet ilva um or the lisas or any yeah. anything so we have a really active facebook group we have these unfiltered podcasts we have book clubs and then we have merch and books that you can get at different levels of support so please check out the patron link we're going to leave it in the podcast notes And here is Rebecca and Joanna talking about their faith journey as they wrote The Great Sex Rescue. Welcome to the Unfiltered Podcast yet again. It is Rebecca and Joanna. uh, Still just filming a bunch in one short time period. So once again, I have no idea which episode this is going to end up being. Nope. We have no idea, um, but we just wanted to get some, get a bunch of episodes done while Joanna was still in town with us, so. Well, we just had so many ideas rattling around in our heads, and it yeah. feels really good. Just to get them out. Yeah, and just, just to, to get it out. It feels like, yeah, nice to process with you all. Yeah, so um, we were thinking about today, um, about talking about our experiences kind of with, and I know this is a buzzword everyone's using these days, but our experiences with deconstruction over the last year or two, um, especially. Mm-hmm. But I know that for me, it kind of started when I was 14, 15. Yeah, it's been a long time coming. Yeah. But I just, I think, actually, here's what I'm thinking. For me, this is how you and I responded on the day your mom called and was like, I have just read Love and Respect. Yeah, that's exactly it. Because I've had a lot of conversations with my mom about the church and about kind of like 
are reshaping a lot of our beliefs mm-hmm. about, you know, just, just about, I mean, about everything. We're all in the same boat here though, right? Like we all feel kind of like we're, we're, we, we know that we accepted at least some lies. Yeah. And so now we're just kind of figuring out what is true yeah. about Jesus, it, about scriptures, about, yeah. So it's, we're all in the same it's boat. It's easy to feel very unmoored in all of oh, it. Oh yeah. And I, and I know that back in December, my mom and I did a very honest and frank podcast about how we're feeling very spiritually homeless. And that hasn't really changed much. Um, but well, it's it also, hard with COVID because well, it's not uh, as though you can go church shopping and exactly. look around and try different things on. That's just not possible. Yeah, exactly. And so at least, but I do know that that was, that podcast really touched a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And so I figured that within the Patreon group, if you, you know, are here and you're willing to like support us financially as we try to change the conversation in the church, you probably also believe that the conversation needs changing, which frankly means you've likely deconstructed a bit. Yeah, um, and I and I do want to say before we start this, I apologize if you can hear my dog in the background. Uh, uh, Joanna's daughter has pretty severe dog allergies, so he is going to be in the room with us while yes. they are here. So um, apologies, yes. but I think as we go forward, I'm going to be using words like deconstruction, like um, you know, rethinking, and 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 a lot of these words can be very um, emotionally heavy for people. Um, and but by deconstruction, let's just define some terms. Yeah, deconstruction to me means Tearing everything away except for the foundation. Yeah. Um, because for me, at least, the foundation was always Jesus. Well, and the, I think what, to me, what this deconstruction is, is it's a refining fire. Yeah. And fire in the scripture, like water, it, uh, it is all gone. Like a yeah. flood destroys everything. But fire always leaves a remnant. Yeah. And my hope with deconstruction is that we kind of, like a surgeon getting out you know, necrotic flesh. Yeah. You get out the necrosis, but you leave the good stuff. And then yeah. in so doing, you protect the healthy tissue. Like Exactly. And I think that, that I know a lot of people, um, even people on the Patreon, don't like words like deconstruction because you, um, there's there's a, a negative connotation sometimes. Well, and it can be associated with the, the snowball rolling so far down the hill that you lose your faith entirely. Um, and yeah. that's a risk when you, and en- when you enter into deconstruction, that is a risk that you're oh, taking. Oh, it totally is. Um, but I, I, and I, and I think we've all known people who, um, have an unravel so that the whole thing comes apart. Yeah. Because, uh, uh, I think that there are some people who, and I'm, and I want to be very clear that I'm not judging, um, if you've lost your faith due to deconstruction, I think that for a lot of people, that's a very natural consequence of the kind of faith they were given at the very beginning of their lives. And I actually think is quite healthy for some people because there are a lot of people who are never given a gospel of love and grace. Mm-hmm. The very foundation of the gospel they were given is judgment and death. And so it makes sense that when you start questioning, that would all just fall away. Um, and I hope that, that is, if that's your story, you, you, you actually come to learn about the gospel of love and grace and that love and grace is not an asterisk in the Gospels. Yeah. It's just the whole thing. Well, I think it can be a real difficulty when the only church you've known also may preach love and grace. But it doesn't show it. No. And yeah. Yeah. And okay. that's what I mean by like the foundation yeah, is, totally. is death. Um, so so let's, I know those. that's kind of a weird way to start, but I, I just know that there's a lot of people who use words like deconstruction to simply hate on religion um, yeah. in a really, really, um, I, I'm just going to say a very terrible way. Like it's, it's quite hurtful. Um, and also terrifically time. unhelpful. That's what I was going to say too. Yeah, it isn't actually very um, beneficial because who is who is edified, right? Like if we're just hating on religion and Christianity and stuff like that without offering a better way forward, without trying to even 
remotely understand why people might choose to follow Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's not what we're talking about in terms of deconstruction. No. So, so I know that people in our generation probably have more of an understanding of deconstruction, but I do, and again, I'm not trying to sound like, oh, we're the young folk who know everything. Um, but it, this is kind of a cultural thing among our generation where, like, everyone's kind of going through deconstruction right now to a certain extent. So, um, and that's not necessarily as much the case in, like, my mom's generation. Right. Um, and that's kind of what we wanted to talk about. Because I've been talking to my mom uh, a lot recently, and she was just talking about how, you know, it kind of dawned on her that she and I have had very, very different faith experiences throughout mm-hmm. our whole life. Because for mom, faith was always the safe spot. Mm. Church was always the safe place. For her whole childhood, she was surrounded by amazing Christian influences. She had churches that were focused on, you know, being sold out for Christ, for truly changing the world for good and truly spreading love and mercy and justice, you know, like helping feed the hungry, helping home the homeless, helping like really being Jesus' hands and feet on the world. And what does that mean? That's what she would summarize her church experience as in high school. Yeah. That is not how Joanne and I would summarize our church experience in high school. Not even a little bit. Um, and so what, what my mom and I are talking about um, on, a, on a long walk one day was just that my mother is continuously surprised when the church is spreading harmful and bad information. My mother is continuously surprised when the church shows up and is bad. I am continuously surprised when the church shows up and is good. Um, and, and that's a really horrible and sad realization to have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I realized that, like, your mom was surprised when she read Love and Respect. Yeah. And I was like, oh, no, that's about what I would have expected. I mean, Me too. It's, like, there are things in Love and Respect. I am surprised by how bold-faced blatant, yeah, how on the nose it is, all of that. But, like, the fact that there were the bad teachings out there... That part didn't surprise me. No, and I think it's because we grew up with the generation that watched the Duggars. We grew up hearing a kiss dating goodbye. We grew up in churches that were uh, supremely focused on making sure that we as women knew our place. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and my mother did not grow up with that. Right. She didn't. And so when um, you know we were in these churches that were doing these things, she, um, I, I actually feel... Uh, um, there are major benefits to having been able to trust the church for so long mm-hmm. that I'm very jealous that my mother has had. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just call it what it is. In some ways, it makes it a lot easier. But in some ways, um, my norm is to assume that a Christian doesn't actually know Jesus. And I know that sounds really, really harsh. Um, but the, the pastors that I grew up with in, um, I've always known great pastors, so, you know, there have always been shining examples, but like, I just know that my experiences growing up have been that anytime I meet up with Christian leadership, I am gaslit. I am looked down upon. I had a pastor convince a boy not to date me because I didn't agree with one minor part of their theology. Yep. Which, and I was only like 16 years old. Mm-hmm. Like... That's pretty intense totally. um, to go through when you're 16, having, having to, knowing that pastors are talking about you behind your back and talking about you to the guy you like behind your back. Ugh. Like, and that doesn't sound that bad to like an adult, but like as a 16 year old, that's pretty like, that's horrible. I had a whole committee of grown adults who are supposed to be 
mentors of mine in the church um, plotting to figure out how they could remove me from some of my favorite activities with my youth group and um, related kind of areas of my mm-hmm. life because they just didn't like me. That's what really what it was. I have been bullied by leadership, um, and that, those are two of my most tame examples, by the way, because there are some that I genuinely don't think I'm able to share in public because I, I, it might, yeah, it's not good. But I have been bullied by church staff, church leadership, church volunteers um, who were like 15, 20, even 50 years my senior um, since I was 14 years old, um, if not before. And that's been my experience. My experience has been in general that um, if you work with a church or you're part of that, you have to prove that you're trustworthy to me. Mm -hmm. Um, You don't get the benefit of the doubt ever because I've known that Christians in my life have actually caused me more hurt than those who aren't in the church. Um, And I think that that's a fundamentally different experience than what a lot of people have had in the church. And not just, and I don't think it's just a generational one either. No. There are a lot of people in my mom's generation who grew up in very, very um, fundamentalist churches back in the 70s and 80s. Totally. There's been toxic for as long. None of this, this is all this stuff is as old as the hell. No, Tim LaHaye's book was published in the 70s. Yeah. Super toxic. Yeah. Super toxic. (laughs) Um, But I think that, you know, we have this profound, um, disappointment um and joanna you've had similar experiences very different but yeah. similar yeah different in i i i think that the hard thing for me oh it's just so hard to talk about yeah but what i'm um, saying is like we've we've come out of it with the same conclusion that you cannot trust someone simply because they are christian yes absolutely yes and i think that's that i i just it, these are very personal stories and, to yeah. us and we want to protect um people who we know and love and care yeah. about, whose stories we don't want to just tell, tell exactly in this sort of a media. Yeah. But, so. but all you need to know is growing up, both of us had things happen that causes our gut to be, okay, you are now on a very pleasant and friendly probation with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and both of us have pastors and leaders and stuff in our life who genuinely blessed us. Yeah. And who we are so grateful are in ministry. Totally. And who the church is better for having. Absolutely. Um, so we're not saying like, oh, we're just prejudiced against anyone who is involved in a church. We're both going to be involved in churches again someday, probably, hopefully, maybe. We'll see. <laughs> if COVID ever ends for me anyway. Yeah. Um, but that's I think. That's the big question. There's, <laughs> but that there's, um, there's a need to understand that for many of us in, especially I think the millennial generation. Um, and I think it's going to be the same with Gen Z as well. Mm-hmm. The The default is not going to be trust. Yeah. And that's why deconstruction is happening because we've had our trust broken so many times in our formative years yeah. that we are kind of okay with questioning everything because we've already been betrayed so often. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it, we kind of, I, I kind of feel a little bit like, um, like the church is a bit the boy who cried wolf. Totally. Um, because we've been told so many things were so wrong and now it's like, well, I know that all those were false. Um, you know, it wasn't wrong for me to be a strong personality as a woman. It wasn't wrong for me to slightly disagree with you on a non-gospel issue. It wasn't wrong for me to stand up for abused women's rights, even though you were actively fighting against them. Mm -hmm. Um, it wasn't wrong for me to do any of those things, but you told me that I wasn't a Christian. You called me a heretic. You called me all sorts of names. You spread lies behind my back. And so why am I going to trust you now? And that is, frankly, how 
um, this book has felt for me and Joanna a little bit, and you can correct me because I'm speaking for you, so feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. No, I... But yeah. it's almost like we've known what was inside the moldy Tupperware container in the back of the fridge, but mm-hmm. we hadn't ever taken off the lid. Whereas I think some people really didn't realize there would be mold inside. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> yeah. And, but I think it's been so encouraging. I personally believe very strongly that our witness as Christians is enhanced when we own our stuff. And it is imperative for us to own our stuff. Yeah. For the sake of the victims, for sure. Oh yeah, like th- like it. Th- that's it's a non-negotiable for the sake of victims that we must own our stuff. Totally. But I also think that an ancillary benefit is that we become people who actually are uh, worth listening to. Yeah. I know I've been told frequently when I critique the church to a non-Christian that like, man, you better like don't do it. Don't talk about that out of class because they already hate the church. And why are you just giving them more ammo? Yeah. And I'm like, you know what? I want them to see that there is a Christian who takes this stuff as seriously as they do. Yeah, and I will say as someone who, uh, my, my husband says this all the time, you know, he was an atheist for years. He came to Christ, I think, either just before or just after he turned 19. Um, I don't know. Uh, but he, he was an atheist for a very long time, and he said that it was not people, you know, he, he knew the bad parts of Christianity. Yeah, they're not surprised. No, no. Um, atheists know the bad parts of Christianity. Um, they know the judgment. They know the harshness. They know the uh, hypocr- hypocrisy. But what, what really brought Connor to understand that Christianity was more than that was the love that the people in our IVCF group in Ottawa um, really showed each other and showed him. The unconditional acceptance, the unconditional love, um, the community just... It was genuinely the love of the people there that changed his mind. It wasn't because they debated him that Christianity actually wasn't so bad after all. Right. They showed him, and they didn't argue with him if he ever had doubts or um, misgivings about the church, and frankly, a lot of them agreed with him. Mm-hmm. And and we need to also wrestle with that. And I think what you said earlier about how like we need to take we need to apologize as churches because of the victims for sure. I I was mistreated by um, leadership. Mm-hmm. I don't see myself as a victim in that way. Um, in terms of like, you know, um, uh, for example, like the sexual abuse scandals that have happened in these churches where youth pastors have literally raped um, the, the girls in their youth group, right? Like that kind of <laughs> intense... Um, you know, amount of abuse has happened so many times. And for those victims, especially the church needs to flat out apologize. Totally. I don't need an apology in the same way. Um, because even though there were some, like, I feel personally that, you know, it's harder to, you can't apologize to every individual person all the time. Right. Um, well, it's, it's the sort of thing where like there are individuals who owe you an apology. Thank you. It is not the denomination thank itself you. that yeah. should be apologizing that, to you. That's a much better, that's exactly what I was trying to say. Thank you. Like, yeah, like uh, individuals may owe me an apology, but it's not like I feel like the church as a whole, like as a denomination did the thing that caused them to do the bad things to me in terms of bullying. But if there were churches that were owning what they did in the in the in the larger ways in terms of sex abuse, in terms of, um, you know, the systematic exclusion of uh, women from certain conversations, that kind of thing, that would cause someone like me to feel safe in a church again. 
Yep. And I know that because those are the churches that I feel safe in. Mm-hmm. I have churches like that in my life. Totally. I have churches where, you know, they name horrific things that the church has done in Jesus' name from the pulpit and say that was bad. Um, and they aren't apologetic for the church. They're apologetic for what the church did. Yeah. And that is the really big difference for me. And I think that's going to be a big difference in the next generation. And I think that for a lot of people who had really lovely, genuinely protected experiences in the church where you managed to be in a pocket where people truly love Jesus, where you just had never experienced um, the horrific ramifications of purity culture. You didn't have friends who were sexually abused by their pastors. You didn't have, like, you didn't have women in your life who stayed in abusive marriages for 20 years because of what their churches told them. Like, you didn't have that in your life, maybe. This can be such a rude awakening, and it Mm -hmm. can feel like everything's crashing down at once. And I just want to say that those of us who have been dealing with this for 10 years, who are only in our mid-20s, that's me. <laughs> yeah, I'm 30. Yeah. So. so you've been dealing with it for like 15 years. I guess, yeah. Yeah. So like we, we've been dealing with it for half of our lives. We'll put it that way. Yeah. Since, um, since I can remember, I, I am not a savvy person. <laughs> I love you very much. I'm just not. But like, no. <laughs> I'm really book smart, but I can be a real airhead. <laughs> and like I, Rebecca is shrewd in a way in which I am not. But I have seen through pastors and yeah. church speak since I remember seeing through it at the age of, you know, 12, 13. And that is not normally, like, I'm usually more credulous than that. And, but the thing is that in all of it, Jesus remains. Yeah. And what I have to do sometimes, because it, it, I mean, we, we It just, gets too heavy. It does. It gets uh, too heavy. Th- yeah. That. Sometimes you just got to kind of go, okay, how do I protect myself? How do I protect my, my belief in Jesus as the answer? Mm-hmm. And it's going back to the Gospels and seeing, like, Jesus is wild. Yeah. Like, he, like, we, we talk have about. a funny story about that Keep, after yeah, you've done this. Yeah, like, we talk about table flipping Jesus. But it's more, like, that is, that is one anecdote of a guy whose entire life was subverting expectations. Yes. Like, you read the story of Zacchaeus. Mm-hmm. And I was reading a book about this. It was so fascinating. So I'm just going to go on a quick tangent because this is who Jesus was. And I want to encourage you guys that what I have found so encouraging is that when I go back and I really study the Gospels or I study the Old Testament, and that I, when I do my intense work in the Scriptures, and by intense I mean I read a couple pages of a book before I go to bed, so not that intense. <laughs> I feel so encouraged and I'm like, right, I'm following in the footsteps of the Master. Like I'm doing the thing mm-hmm. that I was supposed to do. Okay, so Zacchaeus. Jesus has gone through Jericho, and the Pharisees and the, all the, the muck, high muckety-mucks have, in the religious establishment there are like, yo, dude, come to our house for a banquet. And Jesus is like, nah, I'll pass, which angers them quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And he's coming out of town, and Zacchaeus is up in the sycamore tree. And it, the thing of it is, Zacchaeus thinks he can hide. But he can't hide. Somebody sees him. Like, the fact of the matter is there was a whole crowd of people around Zacchaeus heckling him. Mm-hmm. And that piece of the story is something I had never considered before. That, like, I always thought, like, Jesus, in his infinite wisdom as the God-man, like, senses that Zacchaeus is up in the tree. Yeah. As opposed to the fact that, like, no, this whole crowd saw the dude. Like, there yeah. are holes in sycamore trees. He would have been seen. He was totally hated. They would have had no end of fun at yeah. his expense. And they were. 
And then Jesus goes up to him and says, hey, we're going over to your house tonight. Mm, like, yeah. Like, Jesus is constantly subverting our expectations, and he has this ability to say a sentence, like, to say in a few words, something that will just get to the heart and, and zing the powerful while, while building up the, um, the lowly. Yeah. And as we do that, it, it gives us a great, it gives me a great deal of hope. Mm-hmm. I agree. And I think when, that's the thing that's really come back to me over and over and over again as well, is as I'm trying to figure out, okay, like if I do feel like most of how I have seen scripture and the gospel has been, frankly, not a lie, but a half truth. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Like well, I see Jesus as nice. Uh, that's never been my issue. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> I am a Gregoire. Um, no, but for me, I'll, and I'll just, I'll just say it. For me, I, I realized that I had never heard a sermon that had told me I was good enough for Jesus to love mm. until last year. Wow. Um, I've heard a lot of sermons about how Jesus loves me. Of course, but everything came with an asterisk. And as someone who's very perfectionistic, mm-hmm. and as someone who has struggled with severe performance-related panic disorder and anxiety, mm-hmm. um, it really has not been until the last... I, I'm going to be honest. It's since having my son and seeing what love for a child is yeah. that I have understood that my entire grasp of the gospel was wrong. Yeah, the, the kids really, for me too, it was just such yeah. a a wake-up call to see how loved we are yeah. and how valued we well, are. The verse for me is that if you, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your son. Totally. How much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to you? That idea of even though I, I didn't actually have to deal with the whole gifts issue, just that phrase of if you, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts. And he doesn't mean evils in like, you know, all of us are abusive parents. What he means is you're 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 less than the perfection of God, mm-hmm. right? And and that's what really hit me is like if I love Alex and I'm still gonna make him face the consequences of his actions and I'm going to tell him no, you don't get whatever you want and I'm gonna you know sometimes especially when he has siblings he's gonna have to apologize and humble himself and deal with consequences and you know the, that kind of stuff. I'm not gonna give him an easy life. You know, there are still things that he can do wrong, even though I love him unconditionally. I will always simply look at him with wonder and awe at just how perfect he is. And I just had this moment of realizing I have never been given the ability or permission by anyone other than my parents, I will say. My parents have always done this for me, but the church culture I was in never gave me permission to revel in God's love. Because as soon as I was reveling in God's love, I was taking his grace in vain. Mm. That's always what I believed. As soon as I simply felt safe in his love, I was no longer working out my salvation. I was suddenly prideful. Mm. I was forgetting that I was a sinful, horrible human being. And I think, like, if I don't want my son to constantly think that I'm disappointed in him. Right. I want, when he punches his sister, to think mommy's going to be disappointed in me. Mm-hmm. But I don't want him to live life thinking I am one screw up away from my mommy hating me forever. Yeah. And so why do we think differently of God? Yeah. You know, if we, though we are evil, know how to give good gifts to our children. 
yeah. how much more, right? And for me, that's been a lot of the crux of my deconstruction mm. idea, this idea that I am not good enough. I am never good enough. Jonathan Puddle has been fantastic for me. I don't know if Jonathan will ever actually hear this because he's... But I might send it to him. I might send it to him. We'll make an exception for him. Um, no, but I think, um, like, this, this idea of accepting both that we are unworthy of how much love we are given, but also that we are endlessly loved and worthy of that love and that is also why God loves us like both can exist and I think that for a lot of us when we're going through this kind of thing we have big things in Christianity that we have bought into that have been complete lies or half truths and half truths can be a lie when you're only believing the damaging part (laughs) like I'm sorry but it can be totally you know um And I think that for a lot of people, especially with their great sex rescue, the big lies they've been believed have been about their sexuality, about their worth as a woman, about, um, you know, their, their, um, their doom as a man, Mm -hmm. um, all sorts of these kinds of things. And when we have been told to build our faith on a house of cards, when we play theology like Jenga, where it all has to so carefully all match perfectly or else it'll all fall down at the slightest gust of wind. Mm -hmm. Is it any wonder that we have an epidemic in the church of people falling away? And is that necessarily a sign of unhealth of the people leaving or is it a sign of unhealth in the church? And that's a question I hope the church wrestles with. Because I know that for us, love and respect was not shocking. No. But I know that for a lot of people it really was. Yeah. Um, including my mom. And that was really, really hard. Um, that was really hard for her. Yeah. Right? Just this idea that how can they say this if they know Jesus? And, you know, we were like, well, <laughs> welcome to our world. Hello. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You know, we've been here for a while. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that because it happened during Joanne and my formative years, like for me, I know the first time I realized that I couldn't trust Christians was when I was nine years old. I'm not going to say exactly what happened. But it had to do with our, our first church in Belleville. Mm-hmm. And I knew at nine years old that I could, that l- Christian leadership um, and the, the parents of my friends could not be trusted. That, that I was that young. Um, and I have vivid memories of that. Uh, maybe I was 10, but I was around that age, nine or 10. And when these kinds of questionings start happening when you're so young, it's, it's a harder road in some ways, but I also think it's a very protected road. Because mm-hmm. I know that I have seen that the longer it takes for the first chip to fall, the first, you know, house of cards card to, like, slip, uh, the, lar- the larger the house of cards is. Yeah. You know, like, the more you have writing on it. And I know that a lot of people who are listening have, um, a lot of people on our Patreon, they're moms of teens, dads of teens, maybe you have young kids, and you're just like, what do I do? You let them question young, because they're probably going to see it anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, there's no easy answer. Yeah, it's going to suck. <laughs> um, but it might not. And it's also beautiful, right? Like, my faith is very, very strong even when it's not. Yeah. If that makes sense. So I was in college, and I went to a Lutheran church uh-huh. for a while. And despite being, like, I was reading Elizabeth Elliot books while going to a super-duper liberal Lutheran church. <laughs> the dichotomy is amazing. It is. It's so good. It's just right. It was like me, cognitive dissonance 101. Yeah. Oh, 201, 301. Anyway, yeah. It was quite the time. 
but our it was a wonderful little church and I I think more and more that I'm like yeah I I I, I that's exactly where I needed to be and somehow mm-hmm. I knew that um even at, at 18 or 19 and the pastor there would talk about how we are enough that God is in the business of taking whatever we can offer him and of making it somehow enough. Funnily enough, the whole, the first sermon that I heard where it was like, God does love you and he doesn't just love you in spite of yourself. Yeah. Also Lutheran Church. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So good old Jay Gamlin at Jacob's Porch at Ohio (laughs) State. We talk about this and he talked about how anything we offer God, it's like, you know, you make your mom a lanyard at camp. Yes. <laughs> and you take her at this lanyard. And for her, it is precious. Yes. And yet it is like this really weird kind of like plasticky lanyard. And I feel that I do not have a kid who was off at camp making me a lanyard. I have toddler art. Yes. And to me, the toddler art is so incredibly precious. Mm-hmm. And yet, like, it's objectively not terribly good art. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I remember being... Um, listening to, to Jay talk about all of this stuff. And I thought, yeah, yeah, I mean, like, I get that I can never be enough, like, that God's going to make stuff enough, and I, I, yeah, sure. But also, like, I really need to be reading my Bible, mm-hmm. and, like, I really need to be this, and I really ought to be that, and, oh, my goodness, I have so much that I need to be doing, and, uh, like, it didn't get, I, I, I understood it cognitively, but I didn't understand it emotionally. Yeah. I hadn't let go of the performance anxiety yet. And it took my husband years of our marriage of just being like, Joanna, you are doing your best. And I was like, well, well I could always be doing better. And he was like, no, you're, you're trying. Like, you're showing up. Like, that's what God wants from you. Yeah. He doesn't want you to burn yourself out and die young because you've been serving him with everything you have and suffering needlessly mm-hmm. because you're just on it and not being wise or taking care of yourself or thinking about pacing or any of that stuff. God wants you to flourish and you're doing your best. And that kind of message, I think the church is actually getting better. I do think so too. At, I think at, so. at communicating that, that like you... You're gonna. There's gonna be hard times in your life. There's gonna be suffering. But like, yeah. you don't need to suffer. If, if suffering is unnecessary, that is not a good thing. Yeah. And I also think the church is doing better at um, understanding that the some of the damage that they've done, especially to those of us who grew up in it from day one. Because I think what happened. Um, this is me, pure speculation, by the way. At this point, just from looking at uh, cultural kind of trends, mm-hmm. I think that a lot of people. Um, who are a bit older, who didn't grow up with this whole, you have to, you know, perform properly. You have to do everything perfectly. You have to be up at five in the morning doing your devotions when you're 14 years old. Or can you really know if you really have a faith that's your own? Mm -hmm. Um, Those kinds of, those kinds of messages, um, the messages of you will never be enough, who didn't have those messages. They had a lot of the very positive messages growing up. And then, you know, they become pastors and maybe now they're 44 and they're thinking, okay, well, what new thing can I say? And I really think that, this whole thing and the whole idea of working hard to make your faith your own, be 100% sold out, was often, you know, first preached by people who it didn't harm because they already knew 
that they were loved, but they were preaching it to people who hadn't actually really heard that part yet. Um, and I think that that was kind of a cultural shift that happened in the early 2000s, uh, where it's, it's you're loved because of how you perform for God. Well, and I think that there was just this sense of, like, you're, I felt, and this is utterly ridiculous, but I felt a great deal of pressure to save the world. Mm-hmm. Like, God was calling me, like, here am I, Lord, is it I, Lord, I have heard you calling in the night, that's mm-hmm. me, any issue, I am the solution and I'm going to fix it. Yes. Was how I felt. And then I realized that I didn't have to save the world because it turned out Jesus already had. Yes. (laughs) And that all I had to do was show up and live in light of the victory that he already won on the cross and in his resurrection and his ascension. Yeah. And on that kind of note, just to wrap up, I want to talk about something that Connor and I have been talking about a lot recently, which is... His experience with faith versus versus mine. So we went to an IBCF group at the University of Ottawa. That's how we met. I went. I uh, uh, saw him. Thought you're real cute. We got to be good friends for a couple months. And you then, came. You saw. You came. No, wait. I came. I saw. I married. Yes. <laughs> um. I flirted. Yes. Um. But I think yes. I came. I saw. I made aggressive advances that even he couldn't ignore. Um. <laughs> but <laughs> no. But um. I, I met him at that university group, and the way they did small group studies was something called a manuscript study, where you go through a gospel chapter, and you read it verse by verse, and you only focus on the gospel um, that's in front of you and any cultural context that they would have had. So you're allowed to ask questions about, like, what was a Pharisee, for instance. Mm -hmm. But you couldn't talk about Paul's um, discussion of the Pharisees in a later letter. Mm. So, um, as someone who was raised evangelical, and this was a very mixed faith group as well. We had lots of Anglicans, lots of Catholics, lots of evangelicals, all the way in between. Um, as someone who was raised very heavily evangelical with a very heavy focus in Bible study, um, and kind of that whole scripture understanding, I despised this. I made my poor leader's life pretty miserable. I told her very clearly that I didn't really like it and that I felt like this is probably really good for the new Christians. But it was really, I was really struggling as someone who wanted more than just the Gospels. Like, I knew the Gospels. Inside mm-hmm. and out, right? Literally, we memorized them. Yeah, I actually had memorized John, and we were doing John. Um, <laughs> and this, and, and I really, really didn't like it. And it was actually the reason I stopped going to Bible study. Um, mm-hmm. there. I found it really boring. I didn't like it at all. But my husband and I were talking just this year. And this is, this is granted, this, this is like seven years since we were in Bible study with them. And he was saying that because of manuscript study, it's just interesting because my faith is primarily based around Paul's letters. Mm-hmm. His faith is primarily based around Jesus' words. Mm. And that's the way he dichotomized it. And I just sat there and thought, holy cow, you're totally right. And I have some apologizing to do <laughs> to that poor leader. I love you, Elena. You're wonderful. Um, no, but I, I um, and it just really made me think that this is why, you know, I will likely always have more biblical knowledge than my husband because I had 18 years on him in terms of learning. Um, But Connor's faith will always have the foundation of thoroughly knowing the Gospels word for word before he knew anything else. Mm -hmm. 
And that is how we will be raising our kids. Yeah. And just be thoroughly taken with the person of Christ. And that's That's what Connor, well, and that's what Connor was saying is it doesn't matter if he has questions about anything else in scripture because he just knows who Jesus is. Yep. He just knows who Jesus is. And, you know, Paul's letters give us excellent insight into what it means to follow Christ and into, like, you know, the significance Mm -hmm. of Christ. But it all is read with the lens of just knowing who Jesus is. Yeah. And, And I think then you hit a tough passage in Timothy yeah. and you go instead of because I would read that and go oh my goodness it maybe the house of cards is going to come down and yeah. Connor reads it and he goes well there must be some sort of an explanation because this doesn't seem on its face to square with Jesus who I know well, but it must exactly. square with it somehow so let me go figure out how that all fits together well and and that's just the way I, I was explaining it to Connor is it sounds to me like um you know Jesus is supposed to be our best uh, this is this is a non-perfect metaphor, but bear with me. When we look at all the people in Scripture, <laughs> Jesus is supposed to be our best friend, and everyone else is also our friends. But Jesus is always first one, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we're supposed to follow Christ first, then Paul. Yeah. Right? Uh, he says that himself. Paul says that himself. You know, don't say, I follow Paul, I follow Paul, uh, Paul, uh, Apollos. Yet another says, I follow Christ. You know, it's like, no, like, God does it. Um, but... What I'm, what I'm hoping is that, um, what, sorry, what I've seen, however, is that we, uh, for me, for myself personally anyway, I've never been given permission when I was doing Bible study with, you know, Brio Magazine Bible Studies, mm-hmm. with Susie Schellenberger's Little Devotionals. Yeah, baby you know? Becca so I know, someday we will read my answers to those on. So adorable. Yeah. Sorry. Um, but I was not given permission to simply say, I follow Christ above all else. Um, and to interpret scripture through the lens of Christ. And when I've started to do that in the last year, it makes so much sense. It's like this is the missing puzzle piece. Jesus is the missing puzzle piece. And how on earth did I ever let Jesus be the missing puzzle piece? <laughs> so that's where we want to leave you. When you talk yeah. about deconstruction, if you're going through this yourself, make sure Jesus isn't the missing puzzle piece because he's the whole dang puzzle. Yeah. So that's, we have to run because we're going, uh, we're going to get a call from our publisher about our next book. Woohoo! Yeah. So we will leave you at that. I hope this is at least makes you feel like someone else gets it, even if it's a little bit depressing at times. Yes. Um, and thank you for bearing with us with our kind of ramblings that are going through our head. A lot of this isn't fully formed yet. A lot of this isn't fully formulated. And I think that's okay. And we can all figure this out together. Yeah, this is really for us. I think it's a a sounding board. And we really appreciate you all as the patrons Mm -hmm. um, coming alongside us as we're kind of ruminating on these really difficult questions. Yeah, exactly. So thank you all very much. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye. I actually listened to that podcast when I was camping. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Dad and I were camping and I listened to it and I thought, oh my gosh, like you guys said some really important stuff. I love what you said about how Connor knew Jesus's words yeah. and you knew Paul's and yeah. and that was a problem. <laughs> um, and, and I just thought this needs to get listened to by a wider community. So I'm, I'm really glad that we could share it today. I hope you all enjoyed it. 
Uh, and again, if you want to listen to more, please check out patreon.com slash marriage. The link is in the podcast notes. We would love to have you on board um, to support what we're doing. Yeah, and it really is a lot of fun. A thank you to everyone who is currently supporting us. We really are loving to get to know you. We will be back with a regular podcast next week. It's actually a Start Your Engines one. It's mm-hmm. really fun. Connor and Keith are going to be on it, and we're going to talk about how Christian resources can perpetuate the myth of male fragility yeah it is a myth it is a myth because so. guys are not like that <laughs> well a lot of guys are but they aren't created by god to be like no that. exactly and when we we should want more and most guys are good guys and so let's not talk let's not talk about them as if they're so fragile um but before we go i hope you enjoyed this but we want to share some encouragement mm-hmm. um that we got because we love getting encouragement and here is one of our most recent amazon reviews yes let's go Evangelical purity culture teaches that men are animals. Jesus makes no difference in their ability to not lust, look at porn, or have an affair, and women are objects, valued by what they don't do sexually before marriage and what they do do sexually within marriage. My husband and I hated every marriage conference we attended and marriage book we read long ago because something was off. We never fit the stereotypes in every man's battle, his needs, her needs, etc. And we didn't see each other as the enemy. This book, The Great Sex Rescue, makes all the connections with actual research and not just anecdotes. The authors surveyed 20,000 evangelical women and then give answers to all the questions about why sex can be so unfulfilling to many women. Not surprisingly, when women are told that their bodies are bad and can cause men to sin, that isn't easily silenced within marriage. Whether you are struggling with sexual connection within marriage or whether you have rejected purity culture myths and just need a way to discuss it with others, you absolutely must get this book. You then must buy 12 more copies and hand them out to your friends. Yeah, just trick-or-treating up here with, you know, sex teaching deconstruction. Yes, we heartily endorse this message. So thank you for joining us on the Bear Marriage Podcast, and we will see you again next week. Bye.